Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. Long time no here, I suppose. This time, I want to talk about a special interesting case, which involves Stalin a lot. You see, I've mentioned in um, specifically my early episodes, you know, there was a running thing about how the Jews actually killed Stalin, and that it was considered a good thing by most people around, because, you know, nobody really liked Stalin. Well, that was one of the conspiracy theories that we wanted to believe in because that doesn't make Jews awesome. Yeah, that's a joke, but it covers up a true story which happened and is interesting and valuable enough to look at in Stalin's context to be examined in detail because it's a tragic story and uncovers a lot of Stalin's own anti-Semitism. And it's a specifically valuable thing to do now because today's kind of an important date to do that. And um, like I mentioned in my previous last year's episode, I want to do more historical episodes, which is what I'm going to do. We'll be talking about this so-called doctor's plot in this episode. I'll be using Pravda, and I'll be using survivor studies, and I'll be using a lot of information provided by University of Ben-Gurion in Beersheba, Israel. They uh, have a lot of materials available online for the academics uh, in Academia Edu or whatever, they have a whole search of it because, well, obviously a lot of people emigrated away, a lot of Jews emigrated away from the Soviet Union, so if you want to look deeper into this, then there's a lot of free materials online which you can use. I recommend materials by Mark Clarfield myself because he uh, has written extensively on this. On April the 4th, 1953, Pravda carried a prominent statement by Lavrenti Beria, Stalin's infamous head of secret police, exonerating nine Soviet doctors, seven of them Jews, who had previously been accused of wrecking espionage and terrorist activities against the active leaders of the Soviet government. The Soviet people, specifically as Jews, were astounded to learn that just a month after Stalin's death, the new leadership now admitted that the charges had been entirely invented by Stalin and his followers. Seven of the doctors were immediately released. Two 
had already died at the hands of their jailers. The infamous doctor's plot speaks volumes about Soviet politics, Stalin's role, the persistence of medieval view of doctors and potential prisoners, and the survival of overt anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union, despite the known horrors of the recent Holocaust, which the Soviets used in propaganda against Hitler. For Stalin, whose deeds easily matched those of Hitler and whose deceits had been evident throughout the life, the doctor's plot and the intended show trial were meant to cleanse the Soviet Union of, quote, foreign cosmopolitanism and Zionist elements. In fact, it was the only one of the Stalin show trials that did not come off. Only because he died. <laughs> Just because as the spectacle was to begin. So, let's investigate this, shall we? On 13th of January, as you can see, this is relevant, 1953, the Soviet government declared in Pravda that nine of the Kremlin's most prestigious doctors had several years earlier murdered two of Stalin's closest aides. And um, here's from the article. I'll read it in full. It's not a long one. It's available in English online too, by the way. It's called Vicious Spies and Killers Under the Mask of the Academic Physicians. Tuesday, 13th of January, 1953. This is on the front page, by the way. This is page one. Today, the TASS news agency reported the arrest of a group of saboteur doctors. This terrorist group, uncovered some time ago by organs of state security, had as their goal shortening the lives of the leaders of the Soviet Union by means of medical sabotage. Investigation established that participants in the terrorist group, exploiting their position as doctors and abusing the trust of their patients, deliberately and viciously undermined the, their patients' health by making incorrect diagnoses and then killed them with bad and incorrect treatments. Covering themselves with the noble and merciful calling of physicians, men of science, these fiends and killers dishonored the holy banner of science. Having taken the path of monstrous crimes, they defiled the honor of scientists. Among the victims of this band of inhuman beasts were comrades Alexei A. Zhdanov and Andrei A. Sherbakov. The criminals confessed that taking advantage of the illness of comrade Zhdanov, they intentionally concealed a myocardial infraction prescribed inadvisable treatments for the serious illness and thus killed comrade Zhdanov. Killer doctors, by incorrect use of very powerful medicines and prescription of harmful regimens, shortened the life of Comrade Sherbakov, leading to his death. In the first place, the criminals tried to undermine the health of the Soviet military leadership caters, to remove them from the power structure and thereby weaken the defense of the country. The arrest of the criminals disrupted these nefarious plans, preventing accomplishment of their monstrous goals. Whom did these monsters serve? Who directed the criminal, terrorist, and harmful activity of these vicious traitors to the motherland? What goal did they want to achieve by the murders of the leading figures of the Soviet government? It has been determined that all participants of the terrorist group of doctors were in the service of foreign intelligence. Having sold their bodies and souls, they appeared as hirelings, paid agents. The majority of the participants of the terrorist group, Vovsi, Kogan, Feldman, Gierstein, Ettingen, and others were bought by American intelligence. They were recruited by a branch office of American intelligence, the international Jewish bourgeoisie nationalist organization called Joint. The filthy face of this Zionist spy organization, covering up their vicious actions under the mask of kindness, is now completely revealed. 
Relying upon a group of corrupt Jewish bourgeoisie nationalists, the professional spies and terrorists have joined through assignments from and under the direction of American intelligence, extended their subversive activity even to the territory of the Soviet Union. As the prisoner Vovsi revealed under investigation, he received directives about the extermination of leadership caters of the USSR from the United States. These instructions were handed to him in the name of the spying terrorist joint organization through Dr. Shmelovich and the well-known Jewish bourgeoisie nationalist Michels. Uh, side note here, yeah, talk about the Red Scare. Well, this is the <laughs> Zionist capitalist scare. Unmasking the gang of prisoner doctors struck a blow against the international Jewish Zionist organization. Now all can see what sort of philanthropists and friends of peace hid beneath the signboard of joint. Other participants in the terrorist group, Vinogradov, Kogon, Yegorov, were discovered. As has been presently determined to have been long-time agents of English intelligence, serving it for many years, carrying out its most criminal and sordid tasks. The bigwigs of the United States and their English junior partners know that to achieve domination over other nations by peaceful means is impossible. Feverishly preparing for a new world war, they energetically send spies inside the USSR and the People's Democratic Countries. They attempt to accomplish what the Hitlerites could not do, to create in the USSR their own subversive fifth column. <laughs> Which is interesting to think about that they, they literally accused Jews of doing what Hitler could not. They, they're comparing Jews to Hitler. Just let that sink in, okay? It is enough to recall the undisguised and cynical appropriation by the American government of $100 million for subversive terror and espionage activity in countries belonging to the socialist camp, not to mention that for this purpose hundreds of millions of dollars, both American and British, will be also spent in secret. The Soviet people should not for a minute forget about the need to heighten their vigilance in all ways possible, to be alert for all schemes of warmongers and their agents, to constantly strengthen the armed forces and their intelligence organs of our government. Comrade Stalin has repeatedly warned that our successes have their dark side, that they cause among many of our workers a spirit of placidity and complacency. Such moods are far from being overcome. We still have many complacent people. It is exactly this absent-mindedness of our people that becomes the fertile soil for this wild sabotage. In the USSR, we are ruled indivisibly by socialist relations. In the Great Patriotic War, the Soviet people won a victory which is unprecedented in history. In a surprisingly short period of time, the difficult consequences of war have been liquidated. In all areas of economic and cultural construction, we have successes. From these facts, certain people have drawn the conclusion that now the dangers of wrecking, sabotage, and espionage have disappeared, and that the bosses of the capitalist world will give up their attempts to conduct subversive activities against the Soviet Union. But only right opportunists can think and judge this way. People standing for an anti-Marxist view of the fading of the class struggle. They do not or cannot understand that these successes lead not to the exhaustion, but to the sharpening of the struggle. That the more successful is our forward progress, the more fierce will be the struggle of the enemies of the people, doomed to destruction, bought to despair. So the immortal Lenin teaches, so does Comrade Stalin teach. In our revolution, Lenin points out, more than any other, the law was proven that the strength of the revolution, the strength of its pressure, energy, determination, and celebration of its victory will increase, along with this, the strength of the opposition from the bourgeoisie. Unmasking the opportunistic theory of the fading class struggle due to the degree of our success, Comrade Stalin warned. 
This is not merely a rotten theory, but also a dangerous theory, because it lulls our people to sleep, leads them into a trap, while it gives the class enemy a chance to recover for war against the Soviet power. In the USSR, the exploiting classes were broken up and liquidated a long time ago, but still there remain vestiges of bourgeoisie ideology. Vestiges of the morals and psychology of private ownership. There remain holders of bourgeoisie opinions and bourgeoisie morals. Living people, secret enemies of our people. Exactly these hidden enemies, being supported by the imperialistic world, will be harmful in the future. All this obliges the Soviet people in every possible way to strengthen their revolutionary vigilance, to keep a sharp-out eye for enemy plots. Just this fact that a group of filthy degenerates from the men of science were over the course of some time able to work with impunity, reveals how some of our Soviet organs and leaders lost their vigilance, having been infected with carelessness. The organs of state security did not reveal soon enough the saboteur and terrorist organization among the doctors. In this, these organs should have been specifically watchful, since historically already knows examples when under the mask of doctors, wishes killers and dog traitors to the motherlands were active, such as doctors Levin and Pletnev, who on assignment of enemies of the Soviet Union killed the great Russian author Maxim Gorky by means of deliberately erroneous treatments, as well as important figures of the Soviet government, such as Kuybyshev and Mezhinsky. Uh, yeah, they just a uh, side note: Kuybyshev and Nijinsky killed by Stalin, Pleniev and Levin, obviously pointed fingers at that thing and also killed. And Maxim Gorky is a weird case, but probably also killed by Stalin. Yeah, carrying on. Nor did the leaders of the Ministry of Public Health turn out to be up to the task. They overlooked the terrorist activity of the vile degenerates who had sold out to the enemies of the USSR. Exposing this gang of poisoner doctors struck a shattering blow to the Anglo-American warmongers. Their agents were captured and neutralized. Again, the true face of slaveholding cannibals of the USA and England appears before the whole world. The Soviet people, with anger and indignation, denounced the criminal band of killers in their foreign bosses. As for the despicable hirelings serving for dollars and sterling, the people crushed them as loathsome reptiles. Maybe David Icke was right, you know. As for instigations of these murderous mercenaries, this day they can be sure of. The retribution will not forget about them, and we will find out the devious road that leads them in order to speak its weighty word. All this is true, of course, but it is also true that apart from these enemies, we still have another enemy. The lack of vigilance in our people. One may not doubt that, as long as we are absent-minded, there will be sabotage. Consequently, in order to liquidate sabotage, it is necessary to purge lack of vigilance from our ranks. Wow, now that was a bit long, but uh, to be honest to you, this article, and as you know, on April the 4th comes like, ah no, Stalin just made the whole thing up, right? This article just shows how Soviet propaganda machine worked, and what they printed out, and what, what happened every day. If you needed a plot, there was a plot, and this article is... Uh, Kind of the most funniest thing of the whole study, to be exact, because... Oh boy, it's gonna get um, a bit more sad and depressing, as usual. Hey guys, Annette here. I hope you are enjoying our new episode of The Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on Patreon.com. 
Please remember to also follow us on our social media, like Twitter, where we are known as Eastern underscore Border, and on our Facebook page. We also have a Discord server, so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. That's it for now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You see... Until Stalin's death, the Soviet media pounded away at the supposed single fifth column in the Soviet Union with constant references to Jews who were being arrested, dismissed from their jobs, or executed. The thing is that this was just a show trial. And let's not just talk about the nine people. It was all over the place. Growing anti-Semitism, well, was everywhere. And how the Jews were bad and how everything was terrible was a popular thing there. You see, this one show trial about the doctors was meant to initiate a carefully constructed plan in which almost all of the Soviet Union's two million Jews, nearly all of whom were survivors of the Holocaust, were to be transported to the gulags in cattle cars. Between the January announcement and Stalin's death a month and a half later, it became clear that careful plans had been laid for the transfer and concentration of Soviet Jews. Rapoport quotes a Soviet Jewish engineer who reported seeing in the early 60s a, quote, never-used camp with row after row of barracks. Its vastness took my breath away. Other witnesses corroborated the existence of the deportation plans. See, Stalin's hatred of Jews and of Jewish doctors in particular did not appear in vacuum. European anti-Semitism had long manifested as one of its more bizarre subtypes, a fear and respect for Jewish doctors. This recurrent delusion is, well, you know, typified by a statement from the Catholic Council of Valladolid in, well, or as early as 1322, where Jewish physicians under guise of medicine, surgery, or apothecary commit treachery with much ador and kill Christian folk when administering medicine to them. But back to Stalin. See, he had long manifested his hatred not only of Jews, but by extension of Jewish nationalism or Zionism. Though using somewhat derivative terminology, his slander of both was expressed in the same spirit as the omnipresent anti-Semitism of the Tsarist period in which Stalin grew up. At that time, the notorious Tsarist police forgery, the protocols of the elders of Zion, was widely circulated in Russia and beyond. This tract claimed that the world Jewry aspired to international domination through control of the world's banking system and through socialist subversion. Despite the fact that in 1921 the forgery was exposed in the Times of London, it survives today, mainly, but not exclusively in the Arab world, 
where an ongoing television series is based on the protocols. Sometimes Stalin's concerns conflicted. For example, when Lena Strin, a well-known Jewish scientist, was tried secretly on trumped-up charges in 1952, Stalin spared her life, imprisoning her for only five years of hard labor, probably because she was the Soviet Union's foremost expert on longevity, a field that intrigued the aging leader. In general, Stalin severely mistrusted doctors, whatever their nationality. In his memoirs, Dmitry Shostakovich, uh, the one who was also kind of um, admittedly murdered, tells the tale of Vladimir Bekhretyev, a world-renowned psychiatrist who at 70 was summoned to address Stalin's mental condition. The good doctor described him as ill, perhaps even paranoid, and how right he was. Bekhretyev died immediately afterwards, poisoned by Stalin. But Stalin's special hatred was reserved for Jewish doctors. Although in the last decades of Tsarist rule, Jews were restricted from owning land and excluded from most other professions, they had indeed entered medicine in numbers to far out of proportion to their small percentage in the overall population. So, when Stalin decided to resolve the Soviet Union's Jewish problem, it made perfect sense to open the campaign with a show trial against a group of mainly Jewish doctors who are often branded Zionists or agents of the Joint International Jewish Charitable Organization. Uh, let me remind you that uh, one of my grandmothers, Miriam, from mother's side, is my tie to the Jewish people. She was also a doctor. That's a weird thing, you know. A propaganda offensive accompanied the plans to deport, for their own good, quote-unquote, the Jewish population. One million copies of a pamphlet were prepared for distribution. Its title, Why Jews Must Be Resettled from the Industrial Regions of the Country. The deportation was purposely in response to a carefully orchestrated letter prepared for Pravda and signed by many terrified Soviet Jewish leaders imploring the father of all peoples, as they named Stalin, to deport the Jews for their own protection. It appealed to the government of the USSR and to Comrade Stalin personally to save the Jewish population from possible violence in the wake of the revolutions about the doctor poisoners of Jewish origin. Quote, we as the leading figures among the loyal Soviet Jewry totally reject American and Zionist propaganda claiming that there is anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union, end quote. According to the Stalin's plan, the doctors would be convinced and scheduled to be hanged, symbolically, around Easter. As Rappaport explained, Rappaport is one of the writers of uh, this whole issue, one of the authors from the Benghazi University. Then, incidents would follow. Attacks on Jews orchestrated by the secret police, the publication of the statement by the prominent Jews, and a flood of other letters demanding the action that action be taken. A three-stage program of genocide would be followed. First, almost all Soviet Jews would be shipped to camps east of Ur the east of the Rals. Second, the authorities would set Jewish leaders at all levels against one another. Also, the KGB, secret police, would start killing the elites in the camps, just as they had killed the Yiddish writers the previous year. The final stage would be, quote, get rid of the rest of them, end quote. Then there were some contemporary responses to this, obviously, but, um, yeah, also not very fun. Of interest is the approach taken at the time by the two main organs of British medicine, the British Medical Journal and the Lancet. Lancet, by the way, uh, is the journal who also publish things about Navalny's poisoning, just, just, just saying. The Lancet made no mention of the plot. 
The British Medical Journal did publish an interesting leader article exactly one week after the dramatic announcement in Pravda in April and exonerating the doctors. Entitled The Accused Russian Doctors, it referred to a wishy-washy pronouncement from the World Medical Association. The journal, perhaps a bit wiser and braver after the Soviet recantation, admitted that, as doctors, we felt disturbed by the assault upon the professional integrity of our Russian colleagues, and especially by the probable effect of the accusation on the trust patients universally have in the doctor-patient relationships. The only other English reference that I could locate from time was a letter to the editor of the Journal of the American Medical Association in March, submitted by the Israel Medical Association, stating forth- forthrightingly that, quote, a false charge has been leveled against the accused physicians, and that the trial against them is staged for certain political ends. No statement appeared in the British medical press between the Pravda announcement of the doctor's plot in January and the retraction in April. Furthermore, there is no other mention of this case in any section of these journals, and I looked at them after 11th of the April, 1963. And yeah... Although the immediate destalinization that followed the doctor dictator's death made life less fearful for all the Soviet Union's peoples, the country's Jews were not yet out of the woods. The next four decades saw periods of resurgence and quiescence in Soviet anti-Semitism. During the Brezhnev years, an unusual combination of state-inspired anti-Semitism and a relaxation of the emigration regulations facilitated the exit of approximately 200,000 Jews, many of whom went to Israel. Later, with Glasnost in Perestroika, almost one more million Jews left, most once again to Israel. A large number of these migrants were doctors. They moved strongly enriching Israel's medical profession. In the end, Stalin's plot failed for one reason only. He died before completing the mission. Final irony is that over the past couple of decades, the cream of Soviet medicine has gone from being vilified in their land of birth free practitioners of their craft in the Jewish state. Stalin, one hopes, is indeed rolling over in his grave. But, you know, that's the documental archivical part. The show wouldn't be complete. I wouldn't include a personal, personal story here. And this will come from an article of the New York Times from 1988, May 13. Because um, this is the eastern border, and there need to be some personal stories involved. See, I mentioned Dr. Rapoport twice in uh, this episode already, and it's just fair that we finish up with his own personal story. This is from the New York Times, 1988, May 13. A short article, really, and um, kind of an interview with him. He's also written a book on this whole subject, which you can access again for free in these whole university networks. It's, uh, I think it should be public domain, or in case of whatever, that book is like five to six dollars. By the way, thank you, thank you, Patreon supporters, for giving me those five, six dollars. But then again, I got it for that because I couldn't remember my university login. If you have university login or something, and, and if you're a, you know, an academia yourself, you can get it for free. I just forgot my university login because I had to, had my computer issues, but. But yeah, you, you can get it for free, or you can like pay five or six bucks for it. It's not that, not that hard. Anyway, the article is just great in a way. Um, also, another thing, a lot of Patreon money, well, a certain percentage of it, goes off to pay off the New York Times and other magazines such as The Atlantic and everything 
to get their older articles from the Soviet era. They just give you a certain amount of articles for free each month, and then you have to pay for to get access to more. And that's what I do with your Patreon money. That's one of the things. So that your investments get explained. So thank you. Thank you for that. And, and also thank you for the computer working again. But now, to wait was Yakov Rapoport's way and his only weapon. His memory wound itself protectively around the days in the early 1953 that took him from the top ranks of the Soviet medicine to a prison cell and back. When he returned, he kept silent, he kept waiting, and he kept remembering. He remembered the throb of medical wrists and the interrogator's words, plotter, poison, and Jewish bourgeoisie nationalist. He remembered daydreaming that the ordeal would end in exile, a typical paradox of Stalin's epoch, the criminal's fondest dream was choosing the punishments for their uncommitted crimes. After 20 years, he wrote it down. Then he waited another decade. Now, he said in a recent interview, the waiting is over. Again, this is an article from 1988, so... On the eve of his 19th birthday, his memoirs have been published, a first-hand account of the convulsive moment of the anti-Semitism called The Doctor's Plot. In April 1903, a month after Stalin's death, his successors approved the charges and freed the doctors. But for three decades and more afterward, the plot was never publicly put in context as the culmination of five years of increasingly vicious official discrimination against the Jews. This year, and again, to put in context, I'm just going to read the whole article here, that difficult confrontation has slowly begun, spurred by a reference to the doctor's plot in Mikhail Gorbachev's speech on Soviet history last fall, which is the fall of 1987. Dr. Rapoport's memoirs were accepted by the monthly magazine Druzhba Narodov, or uh, the French of Nations. His daughter Natalia's were accepted by the monthly Yunest, the youth, and both were published in the April editions. Bit by bit, I've been left alone, the last of those arrested, or at least I think so, Dr. Rapoport said. The generations that follow must know about this. I had to write down this to rid myself of it, said Natalia, who was 14 when she opened the apartment door to find a crush of medicine men come to find proof of her father's complicity in a plot to poison the top Kremlin leadership. It was the day I became an adult, after a happy childhood, she said in the interview, sitting next to her father between an ornate wooden desk and a portrait of Albert Einstein. Her parents had had a life of privilege, Soviet-style. In Dr. Rapoport's case, this meant living in the Arbat district, the heartland of the Moscow intelligentsia, working with little hindrance in his medical specialty of pathology and serving as a top official at a leading medical institute, editing encyclopedias. Natalia and her little sister were in the Komsomol, or Communist Youth League. Dr. Rapoport, who joined the Communist Party during the World War II, believed in the superiority of the communist system. The nightmare began for the family when the leading newspapers published a report by the official press agency TASS on January 1953, which I already read to you, so I won't quote the, that part from this article. Within days, rumors choked the air. Poison medicine in drugstores. Silent murder of infants on maternity wards. A young mother returned an empty jar of discarded penicillin to Dr. Rapport, quote, because I'd rather let him die of disease than poison I gave him with my own hands. At least 19 arrested. Nine doctors, most of them Jews, were listed as being among the participants. Later, according to a second TASS report, at least 10 more were arrested. Of the first nine arrested, Dr. Miron Vovsi was a close friend of Rapport's. And as her schoolmates were debating whether the executions would be public, Natalia had nightmares of Dr. Vovsi hanging in the Red Square. But she did not imagine that her father would be arrested. Dr. Rapoport had no such illusions. 
For about a month, they had been arresting my friends, he said. He and his wife felt fear, but not surprised when they received a frightened call from Natasha in the night of the search. When they came home, some of the men took Dr. Rapopov to Lefrotov prison. Miss Rapopov was taken away to witness a search of the dacha. Natalia did not know that. She thought both were gone for good, as expected in Stalin's times. When her mother returned the next morning, she found her daughter huddled in the same place in the same position she had been in during the search. In Lefrovto prison, Dr. Rapoport lived and ate in a one-bed cell. He was not allowed to sleep. Up at 6 a.m., he discarded an inedible breakfast in the toilet. Interrogation lasted on and off all day and night until 5 a.m., followed by a cold shower. Then he was forced to remain standing for the minutes remaining until 6 a.m. At first, he pleased his investigators by freely admitting to such Jewish bourgeoisie nationalist acts as protesting quotas that kept young Jews from higher education, which were a real thing, because there were quotas, hidden ones, obviously, but that they really did keep the Jews from higher education in the Soviet Union. Pleasure turned to bewildered fury when he refused to confess to membership in the terrorist plot. I don't understand your defense strategy, said the interrogator. Dr. Rapoport said that he would not lie, either to exonerate or implicate himself. Other arrested doctors, including Dr. Vavsi, however, did confess. After, you know, torture. Later, as Dr. Vavsi was dying of cancer in his leg, he told Dr. Rapoport, You can't compare my state now with my state then. I've lost my leg, but I'm still a man. Then, I cease to be a man. Death seemed inevitable. The investigation's a sham. But suddenly, the questioners started asking about certain symptoms that indicated a patient had a fatal illness. They inquired about good specialists, but all the good specialists were all in prison. Then, while his doctors suggested therapy under the glare of interrogator's lamps, Stalin died. Uncle Joe was no more. And because he died, the doctors did not. And only because he died. Dr. Rapoport was not told of Stalin's death. The country was in deep mourning fake, for the most part, but all he knew was that the tone of the interrogations was changing. A few weeks after the strange questioning about medical symptoms, he was taken to a new investigator, who first spoke to castigate the old investigator for Dr. Raportov's emancipated appearance. Said the new man, Please forget what happened during the investigation. The beatings and such, they were the norm. Some weeks later, Dr. Raportov was released. As he was reveling the chance to finally use a razor and a toothbrush, his wife told him Stalin had died. In the days and years afterward, he kept his party membership. But he also kept his doubt. There was some, but I hope that someday common sense would triumph, he said. And I lived to the day when the common sense did triumph. For Natalia, it was way different. Slower to forgive the family's friends who had shunned her and her mother during her father's arrest, she was adamant about not joining the party. I would never join this party for all these years, she said. Only now, perhaps, in this year, if you ask whether I wanted to join the party, probably now, I would agree, because now I have the feeling, maybe I'm deceived, that something depends on me. Again, this is from May 13, 1988. She never really joined the party, and the Soviet Union collapsed soon afterwards. But, just to show that, when we speak about Hitler's greatest crimes, we have to mention the Holocaust. But let's not forget that Uncle Joe was just as Semitic as Hitler was. Except he knew how to hide it all better. And his plans were slightly more sinister and well-prepared. And he died before he could execute them.
So that's it for today. And I hope you've learned something new. And I hope that you'll learn something new from me during all of this year. And please support us on Patreon. And don't forget to click the donate button on the Eastern Border homepage. And um, message us on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. We'll also be on Minds.com because I have issues with Facebook. Because apparently, well, you can't use some words. as like, you know, couldn't copy the Pravda article or whatever. And uh, stay safe. Keep calm. And remember, things could get worse. До свидания, товарищ. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void.